The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Okay, we can hear me? Okay. Uh, good morning! Uh, I'm here to kick off the first day of a new tradition at our school called Green Week. What? First we give a month of black history, now we're blowing seven days on the Irish. All this week, Greendale College is becoming so earth smart that we're changing our name to Envirodale! But we're already called Greendale. <laughs> well, there's um, also going to be a free rock and roll concert by a certain band called Green Day. Huh? That make you happy? Hmm. Oh, really. We need to redo these. We printed 5,000. We'll print 5,000 more. I'm trying to save a planet here. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 14th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on WBCQ 5130. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Wow, do we have a theoretically wide-ranging set of topics to discuss with our in-studio guest today. It would probably be impossible to find a more qualified person to speak on the subjects of everything from climate change, space-time, mathematics, gravity, and physics, and, believe it or not, the probability of intelligent extraterrestrial life. And who knows what else we'll be able to squeeze into our hour today. We've got the guest to make it all possible. But before we introduce him... Always remember that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, hear us on WBCQ 5130, and visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Well, Bob, sitting across from us today is a celebrity in some circles, and it certainly is in, in, in this uh, room <laughs> um, I'm just glad to shake his hand. I asked to shake his hand twice because he is a, a cause celeb over in Europe, especially apparently when he's speaking to the House of Lords or in Paris giving a lecture or talking about extraterrestrial likelihood and things of that nature. Christopher Essex is a full professor and associate chair in the Department of Applied Mathematics at the University of Western Ontario here in London and a former director of its theoretical physics program. He's currently chairman of the Permanent Monitoring Panel for Climate for the World Federation of Scientists based at CERN. Um, he's got a lot, a lot of credentials here, but in particular, I'm intrigued by this one um, where he was personally denounced by the Parliament of Canada, and he has personal instruction in the art of scientific heresy from both Freeman Dyson and the late Leslie Woods. Welcome, Christopher. Uh, thank you, and it's a pleasure to be here again with the two Roberts, <laughs> uh, to, where I always have fun. Now, this is actually we... your fifth appearance, which is amazing. Yes. So, yeah, uh, I, if, I, if anyone would like, if anyone would like to listen in the other shows, they're quickly numbered: number seventy-seven, one forty-eight, two nineteen, and two forty-one. I love on, those numbers. On, on. Those are all lovely numbers. They're they're really nice numbers. Yeah, they sound like mathematical. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now, Chris, you've actually written a book. Um, in 2002, and, and received an award with the co-author Ross McKittrick, the Donner Prize, and it was called Taken by Storm, The Troubled Science, Policy, and Politics of Global Warming. So, of course, we're going to be talking about global warming and the 
whole controversy surrounding uh, climate to. change. <laughs> well, <laughs> no, we don't. Actually, we don't, because I'm going to give you a question at the beginning, and if you answer it properly, we can continue on. <laughs> what can you tell us about the Navier-Stokes equation? Uh, that's, that's, that's my test, and I, um, uh, I, I, let, let me begin. I, I uh, have this idea that I've, I've been at this for a long time, Long, 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 long time, right? I mean, it's, uh, I, I, I built my first climate model in the 1970s. And I've been at this and been a, a skeptical about this probably longer than uh, almost anybody. I don't think there's any, even some of the really old hands who only changed their minds about it in the 90s. Mm. I was already questioning it in the 1970s, right? So, I mean, I, I and, and at the fundamental level, I mean, building models and being part of modeling groups and so on. Um, and so one, I've spent a lot of time in the wilderness being more or less on my own. I mean, that's completely changed now. Um, but for the first 10 years or so, I was one of the few people who really was uh, taking the position that I did. And now it's quite uh, quite a few scientists are, are openly skeptical. I mean, they always were skeptical. Scientists are skeptical about everything. They're even skeptical about themselves and their own ideas if they're doing their job. So, um, so that's not really uh, r remarkable in that sense. Um, but one of the things that I can say about talking about the science of this thing uh, over these many, many years is that it's really really, really difficult to do because we never actually get to talk about the science of these things when we say we're talking about the science of these things. It's actually out of bounds. And to give you a feeling for what that's like, uh, imagine we sit down and we're going to discuss baseball, but we're not allowed to discuss batting averages, umpires, bats, balls, diamonds, uh, leagues. I mean, basically everything to do with baseball is out of bounds. And part of the reason why is because it's considered to be too technical. Only real aficionados understand these things. So we're going to talk about baseball, but all of the contents of baseball is excluded from the discussion. And that's basically what happens in talking about climate, is that uh, everything that really involves climate, which is uh, physics, Chemistry, mathematics, um, computers, limitations of computer, everything to do with this subject is out of bounds because, well, if I were to bring them up, then you'd say, well, that's just not fair. You know, you're a specialist in this field and nobody else understands it and you're just being unfair to them that you ha expect them to understand it. While I'm sympathetic to that argument in many cases, I mean, I, I don't go around discussing my double life where I talk about technical stuff with my colleagues, but I don't discuss it in my, in my social life because that's a good way not to have one. <laughs> well, uh, but but, but I, I mean, I, I understand that. But when it comes down to the subject itself, we're going to discuss baseball, okay? So I have to discuss it, right? It's necessary to discuss it. So what do I encounter? I encounter people who want to discuss the subject with me and they insist upon me not actually discussing it. So I have to discuss something else about how I'm related to other people, what my views are, if I've been receiving money from one group or another. But we never actually discuss the subject. So uh, when, um, when I get interviewed sometimes, um, I you know, think about it a little bit and I often give journalists a pop quiz. And I've done this a few times, and especially when I was at Paris during the uh, COP21 business, I was, uh, some journalists wanted to, interview, wanted to interview me, 
and I would give them my pop quiz. And the pop quiz was, uh, as Robert said, um, it was just one question. What do you know about the Navier-Stokes equations? This is a really gentle question. It might sound terrible, but it's a very gentle question because it doesn't really have any really wrong answers because I'm just asking you what you know about it. So you actually are the master of what you know. About. But there is one question, one wrong answer, and that's uh, what are the Navier-Stokes equations? Mm-hmm. Um, now, and let, let me now explain the background of that. Uh, the Navier-Stokes equations are partial differential equations, very famous partial differential equations in mathematics and in, in physics and fluid mechanics and so on. Uh, and they are the basic equations that govern the movement of air and water. So, so fluid dynamics. Fluid basically. dynamics. So if you don't, if you can't discuss what is involved in the movement of air and water, it's kind of tough to have an intelligent conversation about baseball, right? I mean, that's <laughs> that's, and there is fluid mechanics in baseball too. I'll just mention there's something called the Magnus effect no. and curveballs and things like that. So there's it's 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 something that at some point people have to pony up and actually talk about the subject and stop talking about other things. That's well, basically what it is. Around this table and this program is is basically built around politics and philosophy, not so much the technical aspects of science in, in any, in any <laughs> yeah. field. Well, we discuss it a lot. No, we discuss, it. We discuss it. it from a layman's point of view. Applied politics. <laughs> applied <laughs> politics. Uh, but... So when people are, or when you're asked to be interviewed by a person after a climate change uh, summit or conference, surely they're not asking about the Navier-Stokes. They're asking about the politics surrounding the whole thing. Your opinion. Uh, your opinion on politics. Yeah, well, it's very important to understand that this, po- this particular politics is allegedly rooted in science. Yes. And uh, if people want to know what my opinion is, it's very much tied up with Science. Yes. So if you want to know what I think about things, then then you better understand what I actually think about things, and then you can understand why I think the way I do. It's it's uh, you can't they're they're not separable, but they have succeeded in separating them, uh, and they're not even aware that they've separated these things out completely because they don't even know what's inside of these things. And I, I just mentioned that every time I apply this test to a journalist. They fail. I mean, I didn't do it to you guys, but of course, you already know the answer because you've read the interview. I mean, so well, we interviewed right, so you before, and, right. and, and, uh, and the yeah. whole fluid dynamics thing has come up constantly. In, in well, in there's radiative transfer. I yeah. didn't even talk about that. There's there's Schrödinger's equation, the the mm-hmm. uh, uh, for, for actually discovering what's going on with the spectra of the infrared absorption of things like carbon dioxide. And things. This is part of part and parcel of of the the knowledge I have, the roots that I have in this subject. And so you actually have to have heard of these things in order to have an intelligent conversation on this topic. And this is so incredibly crucial that we would be able to understand the difference between political style thinking and scientific style thinking. They're completely different now, things. Would not the, the reporters and people interviewing you assume that the scientists on the other side of the issue who say they believe in, in anthropogenic global warming, et cetera, to the degree it is, that they've done the same kind of homework you've done. And that, that you're basically coming from your, each of your expert, expertise, which they understand neither side of. So for them, the whole thing is an issue of consensus, which it always is in politics and always is for, for, for people in, in the media. 
Well, it, many of these people, uh, these other scientists who have discovered, dis, uh, studied some of these subjects, some of them have just studied more and some of them have studied less. Some of them have less technical knowledge than I do and some have, maybe even have more, although I kind of doubt it. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, the, they, um, the, the point, I mean, just all joking aside, uh, the point is that that there are things that I think that they uh, uh, say are wrong, and I have reasons, but they're scientific reasons. Mm-hmm. And if I if I want to articulate why I think this this number, which I, is dubious in its own right uh, for many reasons, uh, why this this number is un, uninformative and why they're wrong, I have to discuss it on a scientific level. So if you now, like a court judge, you know, ban this evidence. Then, in fact, I, my entire argument is gone, and so I just look like some kind of uh, lunatic. I don't really actually have a rational argument to provide. Well, it's, it's, it's just, it's just, in a, it's just completely wrong what they're doing. That that's what I was just about yeah. to say. Is that isn't that their tactic? Is to take when you dismiss an expert's expert opinion and ask them for an opinion which is outside their purview, you're basically shaming them. You're embarrassing them, trying to destroy their point of view. Yeah, shoot the messenger. I, th- I think that's part of it. Uh, I'm sure that there are political agendas. I mean, when it comes to my encounters with politics, the more nefarious it is, the more likely <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. it's true. I've, but I mean, the the fact is that there's more to it than that, and that is that there is really an uncomfortable relationship between science, scientific thinking, and the political thinking, and people have trouble distinguishing the two. And I think that that's at a at a sort of a fundamental level. I mean. I can understand if a reporter comes to me and uh, and started in this field last month or something that they wouldn't understand the Navier-Stokes equations. But if somebody who has been like their boss of, on climate stuff for 20 years or something like that, I think they should be ashamed of themselves for not, not understanding just sort of and not engaging at that level. I mean, I actually had when I was in Paris, I had this guy sit down from a very major newspaper, world newspaper, and he started asking me, you know, how do you justify that your colleagues uh, have a different point of view than you do? And um, I, uh, my reaction, since he failed the test, is how do you know that my co- your colleagues have a different opinion? <laughs> but I, you can't even discuss baseball here, right? I mean, <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, maybe we should stop discussing baseball for a minute, and we'll take a quick break for a smile and return after this. Okay, what's the big surprise? Just a minute. This tray contains clues as to what you and I are going to be doing on Valentine's Day. Oh, okay, let's see. We've got uh, milk chocolate, Swiss cheese, fondue. My lactose intolerant boyfriend is gonna eat all this and I'm gonna climb on his back and rock it to the moon. (laughs) No. But it does involve air travel. Okay, um, let me slice this Swiss cheese with my Swiss army knife, and then you can wash it down with a cup of Swiss Miss Instant Cocoa. Okay, I'm starting to think Swiss is key here. Uh Uh-huh. We're going to Disneyland and ride the Matterhorn. How does that involve air travel? We're going to Disney World and ride the Matterhorn. No. Okay, sweetie, this started out fun, but I'm over it. (laughs) 
we're going to Switzerland to see the CERN Super Collider. <laughs> and ski, we'll also go skiing. We're going skiing in Switzerland? Well, you'll ski, I'll go. Afraid not. Do you recognize this? Uh, not the roommate agreement. Indeed, the roommate agreement. I call your attention to the friendship rider in Appendix C, Future Commitments, number 37. In the event one friend is ever invited to visit the Large Hadron Collider, now under construction in Switzerland, he shall invite the other friend to accompany him. Oh, for God's sake! actually put that in an agreement? Uh, yeah, we also put in what happens if one of us wins a MacArthur grant, or if one of us gets superpowers, or if one of us is bitten by a zombie. He can't kill me, even if I turn. Is there anything in there about if one of you gets a girlfriend? No, that seemed a little far-fetched. Sheldon? No. Is he still mad about the super collider? Yeah, he thinks I betrayed him. Come on, what would you guys do if you were me? I'd take Sheldon to Switzerland. Seriously? Absolutely. And I'd leave him there. <laughs> and we're back with Christopher Essex. Chris, are you a fan of the Big Bang Theory? And do you ever spot things, you know, on the show? about its scientific premise that maybe we non-mathematically inclined mortals might miss, or do you even catch the show at all? No, I, I, I watch the show, but I don't really watch it for entertainment. It's like just visiting my home. I mean, that's <laughs> a, uh, You're really uh, a Sheldon, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I have some of those characters, not all of them, but I mean, uh, some, some of them. I have some, uh, things in common with a lot of these guys. I mean, I know people who are like these things, uh, like these these people on the Big Bang. I mean, I oh, really dear. know them. So Because uh, we all know the Big Bang Theory is not really about uh, physics. When, when, <laughs> when, 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 when my son uh, first introduced me to the Big Bang Theory, I watched a few episodes, and, and I kind of wasn't sure whether I should laugh or not. I mean, I felt kind of slightly offended. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> he has like, like, like these, uh, you know, geek Canadians being uh, as an as a identity group, you know, yeah. as being offended by the but, – but the reality is that, I, I mean, they, these are my peeps. I mean, I, I know people who can't – never learned to drive and I know problem people who had problems with women not me but particularly <laughs> but no I understand but who that, are in so. the field you mean yeah and, and yeah. who are like mathematicians in and way. physicists yeah. and uh, I mean I know a guy who uh, whenever you hang around him uh, refers to uh, um, uh, people as humans, you know, somebody, <laughs> humans, and I find myself really quite jazzed by that and I kind of sometimes do that myself so <laughs> yeah. hilarious yeah plebes yeah so, okay. so Chris, um, in that clip we heard about the Large Hadron Collider, and of course you uh, have a uh, a position working out of CERN. So, can you tell us? Well, about I've never, the, I've never been. I mean, this is the World Federation of Scientists based there, but I've I, um, never I, been. Uh, no, I we usually meet in Sicily, actually. So that's mm. uh, a whole different issue. Um, but I, I understand I, that uh, you were the brunt of a joke recently. Uh, about it, though. I wasn't the brunt of the joke. I got sucked in uh -huh. by a, an April Fool's joke. And it was an April Fool's joke about something called sonification. Um, and and that's, that's where you take some kind of data and then you map it onto music. Oh. And, or you ma map it onto musical tones or, or audios, uh, audio level things. And there are all kinds of signals in nature uh, which have, you know, are at 
frequencies and in media that have nothing to do with sound. But mathematically, you can always take all your data and map it onto sound if you choose. And and some really amazing things that have been done in this respect, which like are really fascinating. Well, I was thinking about uh, uh, the, uh, something called the Supernova Sonata, for example. They they would record stars blowing up in distant galaxies, and um, and I mean people would keep account of these things, and they would classify them by type and uh, and okay, time and so forth. And someone took a data set of this and they mapped it on to musical notes by different instruments. And so they have something called the Supernova Sonata. And so you can get find this on the web. It's a very spooky kind of eerie kind of music where... Anything like know. the music from uh, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Ta- Kind? No, this is, something, this is way, oh. way more oh. amazing than that because oh. every note corresponds to the end of a world. Mm. I mean, that's just like, boom. I mean, it is, the world is gone. Boom. So like the ringing of a it's, bell. It's very humbling. I mean, when you hear that, and maybe a little bit uh, intimidating too, but it's, it's, an, it's an amazing thing to listen to. So I recommend that. But the, the thing is that you can map data on in many different ways. So there's, in fact, an infinite number of ways mathematically. You can take the data and map it onto sound in many different ways. And, of course, some experimental musicians have been, doing this and so it's kind of a fascinating thing it would take sound hookups and then do some kind of physical random process and map it onto piano sounds and it produce something produces something kind of quasi bach like i mean it's, it's quite fascinating uh, but it really is not a reflection of the actual science so on april fools apparently some people at the large hadron collider did this with some of the data they, they like experimental high energy physics is very data rich. There's a huge amount of data that's being combed through to try to figure out what's going on. And so they mapped some, they did some sonification of the data set. And of course they had a video of them listening to it. And then there was some kind of pulse, which suddenly was mapped onto Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, the mm. opening of the day. <laughs> and all the scientists stood up as if they're all shocked by this. So my, my reaction, that was April Fool's, right? So uh, my reaction was to start to explain about what I just explained about the non-uniqueness of mapping right. and how ad hoc it is and you could do it any way you like. It was like wearing different clothes and, and how this couldn't be something that's really in physical. And my colleague said, hey, Chris, uh, it's an April Fool's joke, you know. And the thing is that I had to think, well, why did I get sucked in? Because I like to, to make jokes like that. I mean, I like to, to tease people. And uh, Well, mathematics uh, uh, and music are related. I, well, the reason why I got, got sucked in is because of the climate thing, because every day there's stuff like this going on in, in the whole, and then coming out of the, sure. you know, the, the death of the Loch Ness monster because of climate change and things like that. I mean, that was actual news story. I mean, that's or the things let, like let, the face let, on let, Earth. Let, let, I'm not making that up. It, let's face yeah. it: the whole climate change thing is and, an April and so Fool's every joke. Day, every day is an April Fool's joke in that field. And so <laughs> I've lost the ability. I've lost the ability to distinguish between <laughs> not. <laughs> so that's that's the problem. But so that was my April Fool's experience. Yes. Well, April lasts for the whole month, so I guess yeah. we can stay in that foolish yeah, mode. Yeah, no, that's right. You know, in your, your, your interview with uh, Mary Lou Ambrosio, which appeared in a recent um, edition of the London Yodeler, you talk about trying to understand an issue as big as climate change, and you likened it to a mountain where the top of the mountain is lost in the clouds. And if you ever want to get to the top of that mountain, you have to do a lot of work. 
you have to put in a lot of effort. You have to learn. And most of us are not willing to do that. Can you describe that analogy and the course of uh, effort that you've taken to, to be a part of that um, climb to the top of Mount Climate Change? <laughs> well, um, w- one of the things that happens in the popular perception of learning and knowledge is that some people feel they can kind of get away with only knowing so much and then they can continue. And somehow that's going to serve them in all circumstances all the time. And I would say that it actually serves them in most day-to-day circumstances. But there are times when it doesn't work. And uh, if you push your your, your questions to the limits of not just what you know, but the limits of what all people know or who have ever, have ever known, then you're in a completely different ball game. And the problem is baseball again. <laughs> uh, it, 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 I don't know why I'm doing this baseball. I'm not a particular fan of baseball, although I do enjoy <laughs> a good baseball game. But um, uh, most people spend most of their time working within the domain of known human knowledge. They don't spend very much time at the frontiers of human knowledge. And they don't try to stick their nose out beyond the frontiers very often. Sometimes they do, but mostly they don't. And so there's this idea that somewhere some there's some expert who can handle it. So, for example, if we... Um, and it's a very effective technique to, when you don't know something, have an expert come in and help you. So if your plumbing doesn't work, then you call in a plumber if you're not you know, a handy mm-hmm. person yourself. And you know that they fix the toilet and it runs again. And you know that you're actually in control of the problem itself because you just know that, that something wasn't working right. So there's, this, there's a reliance on expertise. But the problem is that in the research world, the frontiers of all human knowledge, uh, you're going out into the beyond where you're talking about what nobody knows. No one. No one knows and probably no one ever knew. And as a result, there are no experts. Or as Richard Feynman uh, once defined science, uh, it's a belief in the ignorance of experts. So there are no experts in what nobody knows. I mean, mm-hmm. it's kind of so simple and so clear, but that's a crucial point because that means you cannot do an appeal to expertise to to, to It's talk interesting. About There's a maxim in politics, too, that you can never tell the public what they don't already know, <laughs> right? And it's true. Yeah. Uh, if you're trying to teach them something new, you've got to give that time before it percolates through and you can appeal to it later. But the thing is, we do have time, and that's the point. And you can see it certainly in climate, but in many other things, where the popular understanding of things can gradually increase over time. We've In the climate business, I, this has been going on for well, almost 30 years, the really um, active part of it. And the level of knowledge on this subject has not improved, and they're using the same cliches and mistakes and so forth. And the problem is this becomes the heart of the entire discourse on the subject. So the level does not improve. And the, the part of the reason why, well, there's there's social, political dynamics of it, but also the people who want to educate the public aren't doing their job because they don't know anything about it either. Mm-hmm. And that's that's uh, one of the problems. So are you saying that perhaps the, the political climate pardon the pun, is sort of getting in the way of doing proper research to improve or progress 
the knowledge and progress that envelope of um, climate change knowledge? Is, is it getting in the way of these, these journalists, these politicians, these self-serving uh, people out there who don't want to see any change? Um, by change, I mean change of the status quo and, yeah. and of their paychecks. Rather or of than, climate. <laughs> or of climate, yeah. Uh, is it getting in the way? Uh, well, there's, there's several questions there. Hmm. It's getting in the way in the sense that people are not able to slowly pick up things. Because my belief is, is and always has been that people are basically smart if you give them a chance. I mean, that's I one of the problems. I, I think most people can understand most things if they're given a chance. I mean, I, you know, it might take time, but that's that's fine. I mean, and, and I think that I, I, just look at all kinds of abstract thinking that people do in their daily lives. I mean, I, I always talk about things like life insurance as one of the most abstract things <laughs> that there is. If you can understand why you would buy life insurance, then you're already an abstract thinker. Go to a bank and just sit there and pretend you're an alien being and just... just Money think, is a completely abstract concept. Yeah, I mean, yeah. what are these people doing? I mean, mm-hmm. try to explain to a Martian what's going on there. All they know is that it works. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's right. What, what, but no, I think there's more to it. I think they really are part of it because people are fundamentally able to think about these things, but they they limit themselves. So there's the, the human public education side, but there's more to your question, which was uh, in connection has it been limiting? Uh, the, obstructing, the, the, yeah. Obstructing is the word, yes, that's a good word for it. Uh, and the answer is definitely yes. Uh, I would say more than that, not only has the reputation of science and scientific thinking been severely damaged by the whole climate debacle, uh, but I think it's fairly safe to say that the entire field has been in lockdown for 30 years because of the fact that we're always forced to frame the discussion and articulate the discussion from the point of view of the popular discussion as set by journalists and uh, and various talking heads and activists and so on. And the money, government money going into the field means that people have to kind of dance to that tune. And I think we've been set back in terms of the human ability to advance the subject. We've probably been set back a generation. The damage that's been done to um, to uh, scientific uh, um, um, collegiality and so forth is and the uh, damage is done to what what we could have learned is enormous. And we, as I said, a set back a generation for sure. Well, when we return on the other side of our next bumper break, we're really going to perhaps do some damage in terms of discussing the question, E.T., are you out there? Dr. Essex actually attended a panel discussion with other scientists in India just this past February, and we'll find out more about that right after this. Hello. Hello. All right, let's dispense with the friendly banter. (laughs) I believe you know why I'm here. Well, I always figured it was to study us, discover our weaknesses, and report back to your alien overlords. Yes, amusing. Extraordinary intelligence might well appear extraterrestrial to you, but let me be more specific. I believe you know why I'm here in the laundry room. Better acoustics for your throat singing? actually not bad. (laughs) Barrister Yale. Yes. Please, don't be alarmed at our appearance. 
My name is Jean-Luc Picard. This is my associate, Deanna Troy. What are you? We've come with some very important information. About what? About space. About the universe you are preparing to enter. We come from a federation of planets. Captain Picard is from a planet called Earth, which is over 2,000 light years from here. I'm from another planet called Beta Z. We've been monitoring your progress toward warp drive capability. When a society reaches your level of technology and is clearly about to initiate warp travel, we feel the time is right for first contact. We prefer meeting like this rather than a random confrontation in deep space. We've come to you first because you're a leader in the scientific community. Scientists generally accept our arrival more easily than others. We almost always encounter shock and fear on this sort of mission. We hope that you will help us to facilitate our introduction. Is this a joke? Did Lupo and the others from the lab put you up to this? No, it's certainly no joke. As you can see, we are physically quite different from Malkorians. And with your permission, I'm prepared to prove it to you. It would be something if uh, we knew we weren't alone in the universe. And Chris, you, you, made, you made an interesting comment uh, that I read, I forget where I read it, but you asked a question that the whole, or, or made a statement that the whole issue about extraterrestrial life or whether we're alone in the universe, quote, cannot be settled unless a positive answer is provided. Now, I don't know, it sounds a little, um, th does that mean that a negative answer would always leave the question open? Is that what you meant by that? Or no, a positive just, one would settle it? Or, or what was no, there what a lot was of there, there are a lot of questions that are like that, and I think people don't um, think too much about that. I mean, um, there, there, there's a kind of a logic to questions. In fact, there's, people have written books about that. There's a, there's a book called The Logic of Questions and Answers, so mm -hmm. um, where you can actually um, have the idea not just of a, of a fa fa answer, false, true or false, but you can also have a question which is false. I mean, you have the question, you ask the question, and all the there you have to define what a direct, a direct answer is to the question. And you know, you're the classic one of the of the uh, the uh, attorney questioning the person on the stand, saying, "Answer the question." You know, I mean, that's. But you can ask questions that have no direct true answer, and those things are in, inherently false. So you're actually the. Um, um, yeah, I mean, you, the, built into the question is an assumption, and uh, and I think in that field, uh, um, there are all kinds of politically incorrect uh, kinds of things that you can put as false questions. But I don't want to get into that. But the, but the quest sometimes the questions only have one one side to them. So in other words, there's only one way in which the question um, can be resolved. Uh, um, you know, so you like proving a negative, I mean, that sort of thing. So um, you can't prove that uh, a, a life doesn't exist. The only, the only way in which you could prove it is if you actually went everywhere in the universe and checked it all out and, and did tests. And, well, uh, you'd have uh, to have the evidence. Yeah, yeah, and you'd have to define. So, so but you'd also have to define what life is. But you're in mathematics. And, and you'd have to define the, 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 the question of, of being alone. I mean, that was the question was actually, are we alone in the universe? Mm -hmm. So and if they did find some organism that existed on some planet, I don't know, in, the, you know, uh, some kind of companion planet on, you know, sort of orbiting Vega or something, 
Um, would that be being alone uh, if even if it did exist because it's just a one-cell organism? I mean, it, you also have to define what alone is. You have to define what uh, what uh, life is. I mean, there's was it, was no it just about life or about intelligent life? I thought. I got what, but you see, that's the question I'm, I'm putting oh, to you. Okay. I mean, I'm saying this question of what does it mean to be alone? If you have some creature. Uh, that, uh, that I would think some creature that can communicate with us and be rational. There might be r something that's rational that can't communicate with us. I mean, that's that's not necessary. No, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, it's it, you know, there are all kinds of ways you can look at. I mean, this is a really fun kind of thing to talk. But about. But even you know, so, we wouldn't be alone if there was such a creature. And 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 how how, how do you? I don't know if I, I don't issue? I don't feel I don't feel like I have company when I have a plant. In the house, I mean, it could be. <laughs> it could now. Some people feel like that's company, so that's okay. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's, but the point is, I'm making is not about plants. My point is making is about what does alone mean? Did you and, in your discussions talk about the necessity for having this alien life within at least forty light years of Earth? Otherwise, the point is 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 moot or debatable because you can't communicate with an intelligent life that is beyond that range because now, it would Robert, take 80 years for Robert, you to ask a question to Robert, get an answer. Robert, have you never watched Star Trek? Have you From never heard of time. subspace? I mean, uh, <laughs> no. have you never heard of long distance yeah, my, interplanetary my, uh, travel that could have been going on? My son, my, 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 son <laughs> my son plays a little game with my granddaughter um, in which uh, he plays the, um, the, the light speed delay communication game in which you're supposed to have a conversation and then you're supposed to count as if you're speaking on the moon before you, you know, so there's a kind of About a three moon earth. Layers of yeah, something like that, 1,000, 2,000. How are you? 1,000, 2,000. I'm fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now let's do it with Mars, you know, and then we go further out and then eventually she says, Daddy, I don't want to play anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, yeah. Well, that's, my, that's my point, though. I mean, if you're talking about are we alone or can we communicate with another species uh, on their planet? But you see, you're all you're pretty close. All you're, all you're raising is the practicality question. Yes, it is. And the question itself is an existence question. Are we alone in the in the right. in the universe? You know, it's funny. You, it's funny, Chris, because there are theoretical mathematicians. That, uh, you are a theoretical mathematician, I, I assume, not just an applied mathematician, but who actually say that I actually write theorems in my papers. Yeah. <laughs> then I guess then I guess you fit the bill. not all of them, but sometimes. But there are mathematicians out there, thre theoretical physicists, cosmologists, who are saying that the universe doesn't exist, existence doesn't exist. Recently, you see headlines. Now they could be blown up by those so this, journalists. So this radio show doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> well, no, no, I, I absolutely. It's absolute poppycock, of course. That's right. But That's isn't it? We putting, have evidence. Isn't it putting <laughs> your field into disrepute when when physicists come out and say that? Well, if you take this equation here, then it looks as if we don't exist at all. I mean, We're just a simulation on somebody's yeah, computer. You have to understand that physicists and mathematicians are all badly dressed and scruffy looking people as in the big 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 bang and they're all kind of disreputable in a way i mean in some <laughs> sense some level the point is that the truth that they're struggling for isn't it's kind of pure and pristine and they're all struggling for that despite our human flaws and defects and we're kind of trying to rise up out of our our wobbly human things and try to get to the point where we can slice off this very sharp truth of of nature and i think that's a wonderful thing and yes. uh, we would all be better off if more of us were a little more humble about a lot of things and uh, i mean it's hard to be simultaneously humble and also think that you can 
challenge the mysteries of the universe at the same time. I mean, so you, you kind of are a little bit, uh, have a schizophrenic kind of mm. approach to these things if, if you're I, in this. If yeah. I may ask, what was the consensus of the of the um, panel, Are We Alone in the Universe? That, that you were I at? was uh, playing the foil for the group. Um, uh, I had astronomers sitting on either side, and um, uh, this was in the, the, the city of Agra. I was at a conference uh, on uh, the whole f star formation which was absolutely fascinating and totally delightful, and uh, I could tell you about that another time. Uh, but they had this public event, and there was maybe uh, a thousand people there. I mean, it was this huge auditorium there for the city. And, of course, it was a very exciting thing for people. And uh, the interesting thing is they opened with this, this incredible display of Indian dance, which uh, w was a, was colorful and many uh, many people participating. It was just absolutely wonderful. And then they had us go up and start talking about the sports. <laughs> but anyway, but um, a contrast. To say it was a contrast. But in any event, I mean, I was sitting in the middle, and there were astrophysicists on both sides, and uh, and I I played the foil. I mean, at each point, they said, "Well, you know, it's it's a very attractive idea." I mean, we've been really, you know, heavily hosed down with science fiction and Star Trek and, and Star Wars, and it's very appealing to think of the idea that that uh, you know other civilizations exist and so forth. And I I find it appealing too, but I uh, took the role of the the logical foil, and I pointed out that the only <coughs> way to settle the question was to have a positive answer that we are not or we are not alone in the universe. I mean, that's, uh, that's, uh, and so the way I said, the, uh, I, th I'm going to settle this question here tonight and I'm going to come out and admit that I'm an extraterrestrial <laughs> and that uh, it could be that some of my colleagues on the, on the stage are extraterrestrials, but we'll find out whether they actually come out. And then I said, live long and prosper, take me to your leader and resistance <laughs> is futile. You know? And you can't imagine how many people wanted to have selfies uh, with me after that. <laughs> I believe <laughs> it. That's right. But you know, it's funny. <laughs> we have life on Earth. We see it here. And, and to me, it seems the universe is this great replicator. And as a matter of probability, isn't it more, wouldn't it be more <laughs> incredulous or improbable to think that mankind was the only, however, form, you know, sentient or intelligent life in the, in the universe given the size and, and the odds? Now, I can argue this from both sides. I mean, I can, yeah, I can I, argue I, that. I, I, I so do you want me to do the foil and, and kind of say no? I mean, uh, but tell I me can what you that. think. Tell me, tell me what you think. Um, I think it's amazing. The world universe is amazing and wonderful and, and overwhelming and awesome. If life doesn't exist elsewhere or if it does, either way. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it would, I mean, if it doesn't exist elsewhere, if that were true, if you could ever prove that, of course, you can never prove that probably. Probably, I use the probability. Yeah, there, I mean, yeah, there right. I'm using, I'm not using it in a technical way. Uh, it, it, you could never uh, really prove it. Uh, but either way, I, and it, you would be asking yourself, well, why not? I mean, that would be an, a very legitimate question because you'd say, well, there's so many, there's, the process is kind of the same. Why would we expect it to be suddenly oh, unique here? Or the other question, it's completely amazing. Look at all the different ways in which it uh, it has been realized. But the 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 thing, of course, I the approach I take, though, when I deal with the discussions of this stuff is the probabilistic argument is a common argument, and it's a fundamentally defective argument. I mean, that's that's an, 
that's important to understand. And you know, the arguments that, that you would hear on stage are sort of the classical ones. Well, this universe is so large. There are so many things going on. There's so, you know, how can you argue that that's not the case? The, the odds against it. But odds, probability, only makes sense in the framework of something called uh, a sample space. That means you have this, like, a, uh, an urn with black marbles and white marbles. And in the case of the universe, it's got this uni in front of it. That means mm -hmm. one. So basically, you just basically have a black marble. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to talk about the probability that would be in some hypothetical urn somewhere with some hypothetical other uh, marbles. And uh, and that's the basic problem. Is you, you don't have a probability uh, sample space. And so the, it, it has no real meaning. It's more just a kind of a gut feeling, right? I mean... I feel there's so much probability. And then the, the numbers are so, so big. That's the argument. And so I, I, mean, I shot that one down by talking about uh, numbers in mathematics. Uh, there are combinatoric numbers that actually come up in actual real problems about things in principle. Um, and there are problems like uh, Graham, uh, numbers like Graham's number, which are, make all these, these universal numbers seem like zero in comparison. They're so big. I mean, the Graham's number, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's, um, it's a combinatoric number. And um, if you wanted to represent it computer-wise, you'd have to use some kind of physical objects to represent each one or zero if you wanted to do it in binary. If you wanted to write this out in binary, the number is so big that you would need so many objects. And if you wanted to put it inside your head so you could actually comprehend it, I mean, if you had enough molecules in your head to actually just represent Graham's number, your head would be so dense that it would collapse into what a black is, hole. What does the number represent? I mean, like, for example, there's that false it's, number out there, a Google 10 to the 100. Oh, that's peanuts by comparison. But then what does the Graham number represent? Is it it's, just something it's, that's... It's a combinatoric... It's an, it's an area of mathematics called combinatorics, where they talk about the number of ways that something yeah. can be done. And this is, turns out to be the number of ways you can select from certain groups oh, in different ways and so forth. So actually... Um, I mean, it's not something you come up every day with, but uh, it's still, it still is. Well, which it's as remote from day-to-day -day practice as discussing the size of the universe, right? So, but it's still a physically real thing, and it makes these universal numbers, in comparison, they're just like zero. I said your head would collapse well, it's not into a black hole. physically real. It is an abstract concept, the number of combinations of, of selection. Right? Well, it depends on what you mean by physical. I mean, in the sense that it is uh, a realizable... No, no, but the, you can still have combinations of uh, possible combinations of the atoms of the universe, which are more than the number of the atoms of the universe. Yes, right, yes. right. So that's, you know, so you can arrange the thing in a much larger yes. scale. So you can talk about the number of arrangements, right? And that's physical. Okay. All right. Uh, well, one uh, of them would be physical. I mean, it's, it's, it's the same thing as, oh, okay. I guess we're getting over time. Yeah, right? we're getting a little over time. I think okay. uh, uh, we want to wrap up in the final quarter with some other issues, too. So we'll, we'll listen to another alien for this quarter uh, being Uncle Martin from My Favorite Martian. I don't know if you ever saw that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm that old. But we'll, <laughs> we'll be back after this to wrap up with, pro with, with Professor Christopher Essex. Can I help you? Uh, don't worry, I'm not here to repossess your apparatus. You're from the police? No. Faculty? Do I look like faculty? Yes. I resent that. Uh, my name is Mark. I suppose you think that puts me under some sort of obligation to give you mine. 
Yours is uh, Mumford, Donald Allen, newly acquired student, 77601, and your home is Lompoc, California. You are faculty. Now, what do I have to do to convince you that I'm not an instructor? Right on the wall, I hate teacher? Don't touch. Oh, sorry. Why are you here? Well, you might say that I'm uh, connected with a newspaper. I have no statement to make to the press at this stage of my experiment. Cyclotron? Mm -hmm. Use a magnetic accelerator? They usually do. <laughs> Quite an advanced resonance adapter. You know what that is. Oh, hobby of mine. I've always been interested in atomic structure. This is the only cyclotron in existence with reversible magnetic fields. Uh-huh. Then I suppose you could bombard both the proton and neutron at the same instant. Mm-hmm. You see, then I could split the most difficult of atoms. However, it's a very complex theory. I doubt if you could follow me. Well, uh, I'm doing my very best. <laughs> Just a bit, I have a power problem. They won't listen. Who won't listen? University. University won't let me near their high power equipment. Very short-sighted of them. get, say, uh, 7,000 volts for you, would you consider combining two radically different elements? Well, what atomic weights? 58.94. Cobalt. And? 26.09. Silicon. Cobalt and silicon. Very interesting combination. You call the new element cellabalt. I prefer that to cocon, which really sounds like a new soft drink. <laughs> It's a marvelous experiment. How soon can you deliver power? Oh, um, about any time now. 7,000 volts? 7,000. 8,000? 8,000. 9,000? Sold to the highest bidder. 9,000 volts a day. And we're back with Professor Christopher Essex. Chris... Recently in the news, of course, there was the um, discovery, apparently, of gravity waves. Einstein predicted them back in the day, and now we've discovered them. What's your take on that? Because I've heard uh, that there are people out there who may dismiss the findings. Well, first of all, I think that's this is just uh, absolutely wonderful. I mean, I just am so delighted by this. Um, there, one, one. I mean, you have to understand a little bit about uh, relativity. I mean, where that sort of came from with Einstein. I mean, it was a, um, there were sort of like two different uh, flavors of relativity. One of the, one of them is called special relativity, and the other one's called general relativity. And uh, in the special case, it really was about something called the. Well, I, I mean, speaking as a theoretician, it's about the invariance of the of Maxwell's equations. And uh, I can give a pop quiz on Maxwell's equations at some other point. Uh, but uh, that's the, they're the equations governing uh, the electromagnetic field, right? I mean, the, the classical electromagnetic field, not the uh, quantum one um, per se. I mean, it's slightly modified in that case because you have to quantize it. But never mind. Um, uh, um, so, so the classical electro electromagnetic field, that, that these equations have to be the same no matter, you know, how you're moving them with respect to somebody else. And then relativity just comes out of that, right? I mean, so the class, special relativity. 
General relativity was um, uh, a little bit different. It was really to deal with the question of gravity. And the, um, the interesting connection between the, the uh, recent um, uh, confirmation of the existence of gravity waves and, the, um, and the, the original special relativity is both of them were tied up very tightly with a particular kind of instrument in, uh, known as, um, as a Michelson interferometer which uses a property of, the, uh, of, of light waves that, of, of, of interference. And so you have these two, two paths, two arms that are 90 degrees to each other. And they, um, you bring in light, you split it, and you go down, and then you actually see how the different arms move by the changes in the, uh, the, the patterns. And one of the things they were able to figure out is, well, a kind of confirmation of what, what Einstein as kind of pre-confirmation, it's kind of a long, complicated story by uh, by these people called uh, two names, Michelson and Morley. Uh, they didn't. They were able to show that the speed of light didn't. It didn't matter whether you were going this way or that way, or as the Earth moved around. You always had the same speed of light, and it was a very confusing thing. And and it wasn't until Einstein that people were really, really clear on why why that was. Um, uh, but the thing that's interesting is in the in the uh, the uh, gravity wave discovery, it, all they did is take this Michelson interferometer and it's a giant Michelson Four interferometer. Four kilometers long, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kilometers, that's right. And um, um, and th that's just because the, uh, they're dealing with a very mm -hmm. small effect, which is a consequence of the nature of, of gravity itself, which it doesn't really have, well, gravity doesn't have charge. It's just kind of self-attracting. This just brings right? up a big issue, so. this, this idea of a gravity wave. Yeah. Robert and I discussed this issue uh, a few shows ago, uh -huh. and I recall during the course of that broadcast uh, asking Robert, who was presenting our report on the announcement of the confirmation of gravity waves, and I said to him, I said, Robert, if it's a wave, it has to be in, in, in some kind of a medium, and what kind of medium is it? And I remember Robert said, did you miss the part where I told you I wasn't a physicist? And, uh, but we've since had, a, had, a, had a, a, a listener pretty well ask the same question. He said the problem is that the general relativity gravity interpretation ignores the space medium. And what <laughs> is it that's waving back and well, forth? Why, a, why do they a, call it a, a there's wave? A, there's an interesting... Uh, historical discussion, uh, if you go back, and is one of the reasons why Einstein in the special relativity case was so fascinating, as such a fascinating story, is because that's what 19th century physicists also thought, that there had to be some kind of medium for electromagnetism. I mean, that electric fields have to be, there has to be some medium, and they gave it a well, name. Well, not a field, but a wave. Isn't a wave, by definition, something that oscillates oh, wait, back wait, and wait, forth? Wait, 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 let me, I need okay, to, I need, need, yeah. I need to explain here, okay? okay. So I need, I need some time. So there's, they, they thought there was some medium that was waving, right? And, mm -hmm. and they gave it, even gave it a name. It was called ether. Right, yeah. And, and uh, there's an, there's, <laughs> there's a, a poem about that. Uh, you find that word a lot th in older a, literature. Yeah, you do. And, and th there's a poem about it. First we had luminiferous ether, then we had electromagnetic ether, and now we don't have ether. <laughs> so they they decided, you know, we what we could, we don't need the medium is the electric field itself, right? And so the, the the and you're guided really strongly by the mathematics here because if you look at Maxwell's equations, you can actually um, put them in the right setting so that they will will produce waves, and you have an equation which is well known as the wave equation. So it comes out. There's nothing it needs to push. It's a wave equation in the electro 
in, in the electric field itself. And so that is a completely different thing. And it's the same thing with the gravity waves. The gravity waves form a field. And it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, I guess it's a vector field because it involves force. But there's a, the potential associated, I guess, is, is a scalar field. But anyway, never mind. I mean, the point is that, uh, that uh, the, if you go with the Einstein equations, you can actually extract a wave equation out of it in, in this property. And uh, that's what they're measuring. And you, it does, you don't need this stuff. I mean, and the problem is that in the 19... 19- is the word wave being used incorrectly then? Or no, it it's not? used in the absolute correct way. And a lot of the times one discovers when you learn about mathematics and physics and so on, is you have to go back to the common sense use a day-to-day version and you have to do little tweaks and revisions on how you think of what those things were. In other words, it informs you about your intuition. You have to have a slightly more um, subtly refined version of, of what you used to think. And so that's the fun of this. I mean, you, you learn new things that you never saw before, and you can see more things about the world in which we live by slowly learning more and more stuff. This, this is like totally delightful and totally fun. All I know is that stuff. if this was an episode of The Big Bang Theory, I would be Penny. You would. <laughs> I, I, I mean, the a thing penny is, for your thoughts. The thing is, you just have to go and look at any newspaper. Not that people watch news or look at newspapers, but it used, it used to be that you go back into the sections on uh, on stocks and bonds, and you see all this technical stuff. And you go into the section on sports, and you see all this technical stuff. But people won't give the time of day for just even some small technical things on science. They seem to think that they should just run away with their hair on fire or something like that, right? I mean, <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, it's, 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 so is it settled now? Do we have is it, are gravity waves a fact or just still a Well, theory? I mean, you know, I, I, I think that uh, I think it's pretty, I mean, everything in science ultimately can be chewed at and picked at. And, you know, they recently had a sort of a big worrisome moment where they thought they had some particles moving faster than the speed of light and so forth uh, uh, and uh, then everyone was kind yes. of you know, ringing their hands. We covered that on the show it. actually. And then, and, then, and then it was settled that there was a mistake and of course anyone who understands about the invariance of these equations would know there would be a really, really serious problem if that was the case. The equations would be wrong. I mean, Correct. that's, uh, yeah. that's uh, incorrect. They, 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 <laughs> they, yeah. So a good scientist would always question the data and always question the results. Oh yeah, I mean, because the, the, everything looks like it's n- like uh, like it's all known and very comfortable, but the way forward into a completely new world is often some little thing that you missed, mm-hmm. some subtlety. That you just never would have imagined, but you had to kind of keep picking at it to find your way through into these new corridors of understanding, and um, uh, it's a it's a constant adventure, like disc- uh, exploring a giant maze. Doctor Essex, thank you for sharing with us your insights to so many of these scientific things that you know the larger public domain never hears about. We'd love to have you back again to continue this discussion. I always like to come and talk to the two Roberts. Excellent. (laughs) And thanks to everyone else who tuned in today. We'd love to have you back again too. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Vibration level minimal Acceleration constant Oscillation perfect Vibration minor Agitation slight Velocity stable
so funny. We sound like two neurosurgeons on television. This is a vital experiment. Sorry, Doctor. Would Dr. Jackson be surprised if he knew about this cyclotron? I dare say he would. Now, Mr. Howard, I must admit you're remarkably progressive for an adult. No old-fashioned theories. You're well down to earth. Only lately, Donald. Only lately. 